Hello, I'm Anelia Varela, and this is the Writers Podcast, where we talk to people making a difference to their business with words. Today, we're coming to you from San Mateo, California, where I'm joined by Kevin Knighton, global brand director and man in charge of all things language at asset management firm Franklin Templeton. We'll be speaking about the risks and rewards of having a distinctive tone of voice in the super regulated world of asset management. We'll also look at some brands who go beyond empty promises to prove that actions speak louder than words. Hi, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I love words and I can't wait to talk about them today. So, Kevin, you didn't start off in finance, did you? No, I really fell into it by accident. I was on the agency side for several years, and I really loved the agency side, but I also hated it. I loved the agency side when I got to work with multiple clients, but I hated the new business part. (laughs) I remember one time spending literally up 24 hours working a new business pitch, and at some point I was like, this may not be for me. And at that same time, a financial services company called me out of the blue and asked me to come work for them. So I made the move to financial services. As I think about kind of my background, I'm really a marketer first. I think about myself and that's my skill set. I'm still learning financial services. But I do believe if you're a good marketer, you can transfer that knowledge across categories very easily. Obviously, in the agency world, lots of different clients. Now you're dealing with just one. What Mm -hmm. are the challenges and the rewards of doing that? That's a really good question. I think one of the biggest rewards is seeing, it's feeling more ownership. I remember on the agency side, I would step in and step out of a client's business. And sometimes you might see the results. Sometimes you might not hear anything from the client about what you did and if it worked or not. When you work for on the client side, I get to see end to end from our strategy development through to are we really making a difference in whatever we're trying to do. And it gives me a bigger sense of ownership and pride. I think one of the challenges that I personally have is I get bored easily. So one of the risks on coming on the client side is, am I going to get bored always working for the same brand? And I think this may not make sense to some of you, but actually it's it's kind of difficult to get bored in financial services because I think there are so many challenges that we have as marketers and branding people and financial services, there's always something new to do. And language wasn't always part of your remit, was it? It was not. I've always loved writing. I wrote um, earlier in my career. I'm not a professional. I play one on, on television as a writer, but I've always loved great writing. And when I made the move to the financial services company earlier in my career, I started getting a little more involved in positioning and messaging learning a little bit more about that trade. Moving over to Franklin Templeton, I've even taken it a step further where um, my team, the brand strategy team, really owns tone of voice for the firm. And I find it quite rewarding because I think it's something that we can make a huge difference in, especially in this category. Not a lot of uh, companies are doing it well in financial services, so I think we can make a really big difference. Everything to play for. Exactly, exactly. Well, speaking of your category... There certainly aren't too many distinctive voices in asset management, are there? There aren't. And, you know, I have a theory about this. A couple of things. A few, about a year ago, I read an article about a lot of marketers in financial services. So you think about the big traditional financial services companies. And a lot of marketers came up through the ranks and in financial services. And I think that because of the highly regulated industry that we're in, 
We don't always have an opportunity to push the boundaries that sometimes uh, the really groundbreaking marketers are not within the category. You don't see people moving from CPG or automotive necessarily into financial services. So I think in some ways that has hurt creativity within financial services. I also think specifically in asset management, when you think about the types of clients we have and our competitors have on the institutional side or even financial advisors, there's this um, expectation about the types of language that they will relate to. And I think that we fall into a trap of trying to write, copy, and communicate in ways that may not be as human as, as they should be for those, for those audiences. You mentioned boundaries like regulation and you know things that a lot of people would think would constrict your creativity. But certainly in my experience, having those can sometimes lead to more creative work. That's a really good point, Anilia. I think when you have those barriers or challenges that you know that I can't cross this line because of compliance or regulatory reasons, it forces the writer to think of creative ways to still get their point across and hopefully in an engaging and human way while still following the rules. I mean, playing a game with no rules is not any fun. I know. So I think in the same fashion that those challenges that legal throws our way, that compliance throws our way, and sometimes our bosses throw our way, makes us more creative in many ways. Couldn't agree more. So let's talk a bit about your audiences. Institutional investors, now those are people like pension funds, right? And also retail investors on the other hand, and you've got you know advisors in between. Some people would say that you can't possibly use the same voice to speak to all of them. What do you reckon? That's a really good point. And we had a lot of internal debate around tone of voice across those multiple audiences. And one of the early things that we, we talked about was that very question. Should we, for institutional as an example, take a more formal and academic approach? And then maybe with retail advisors, maybe it's a little more conversational. And, you know, in talking to our business partners internally and our age and, and you guys helping us form out our tone of voice, we really decided, no, it's not about approaching it with, this is the audience, let's change the tone. It's more about, this is the audience, what do they care about? Deliver what they care about in writing, and that's what's the most important thing. And part of that will slightly shift the way things sound, because obviously with institutional, we might be talking about more strategic or complicated things than we might with an end investor. So there might be a natural shift because we sometimes have to use bigger words with them or more in-depth descriptions. But it's about what they care about, not shifting tone purposefully because of the audience. And with those institutional investors, it is okay to use those words because you are effectively speaking their language. Exactly. I think that, you know, I say I hate jargon, but I also say I hate jargon cautiously because sometimes jargon lends credibility depending on the audience. And I think you have to use it judiciously. And you're, you're absolutely right. If they're in certain cases, if we use words that are simpler for that audience, it might not be the best use of, of that word. But saying that, when we have to use jargon, let's make sure that the words around that jargon are conversational, the sentences are short, 
and it's well thought through from a structure perspective. So just to clarify for anyone listening now, when you're saying jargon, we're talking kind of financial industry speak, right? Correct. Correct. Awesome. So there's kind of like business jargon. When you say keep things conversational around it, it's the business jargon that we're trying to eliminate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like leverage and utilize and any, <laughs> learnings. any pet peeves there. Learnings. Yes. learnings. Learnings. I hate learnings. I'm going to share my learnings today. What's a learning? I, I've never even heard of that. Value add value as a add. noun with a hyphen. Yeah. Blue sky thinking. <laughs> Well, I'll never forget, I was once in a meeting with a professional services firm and we were there trying to convince them that they should use clearer language and, you know, kind of like basic good writing principles. And one guy in this meeting said to me, hey, we're talking to tax accountants here. They are used to having to tolerate this kind of language, tolerate this kind <laughs> of language. And it absolutely blew my mind. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not for the idea of anyone having to tolerate language. But you could argue that institutional investors are used to maybe a certain formality in mm -hmm. writing style. So, so why bother to change if they really are just used to seeing that all the time? I don't think they know what they're missing. I think that there's this idea, and I used to do a lot of B2, true B2B marketing. I would hear so many times that, oh, business to business marketers or, or decision makers make decisions based on facts, and they're very rational. And I just... I don't buy that whatsoever. I think that regardless if you're making a $50 million purchase or a $50 purchase, there's an emotional component to that and it gives you some kind of feeling that you want. And by the same token, these institutional investors, whether you're managing a sovereign wealth fund, a government official, they are people and that people respond to emotion. Now, it doesn't mean We want to be soft and fluffy. We're not talking to someone saving for retirement, but we need to remember that it's not all rational decision-making or all based on facts, that we need to speak to them as a person. And I think we in this industry, I think, are starved for more kind of humanity. And we see that even in more some of the things that we're seeing as we are looking for new clients. And we're hearing things like, Wow, so we know you guys are a good investment management company, et cetera, but we want to work with people that we like. What is your culture like? And so, and we're hearing that from institutional investors. So to me, that's a signal that, hey, let's have some humanity here. And that can come through in the writing. And that can actually be a hugely differentiating thing for a firm like Franklin Templeton, can't it? I think so. I think the bar is very low in our category. I know that a lot of retail banks are doing very well in this space from a writing perspective and sounding very human and interesting. But in our, our competitive set, when you're talking about institutional investors, the bar is very low. You look at the content, and um, I think if we could write in such a way that delivers that humanity and that emotion while delivering the information they want and they expect, we would have a first mover advantage. I don't believe at least in my experience, that anyone is really doing it well right now. Let's talk a little bit about the Franklin Templeton voice. Thinking back, how long has it been since we started doing this? Mm, maybe two and a half years. Okay. I so think we talked, though, for maybe a year before we even started. It was a long courtship. 
But so worth it in the end. The longest courtships lead to the longest relationships, exactly. in my view. So, so back then, if you cast your mind back, what were you ultimately hoping to shift with mm. the new voice? When I think about that, one of the things that I wanted to shift, and it might be some surprising, you may guess, oh, I want to just look at the writing and say, well, from point A to point B, it's very different. And sure, that's a tangible thing that I want to see shift, but I wanted to shift something bigger, which are the beliefs that people have. And I think they're long-held beliefs that big words, complicated sentences make the uh, author look intelligent. And that we are in a category that expects that with specific audiences. And that if we don't write that way, we'll lose credibility. And I wanted to change that, that belief. And I think we've made some progress over the last two and a half years. I'm sure it's easier said than done, though, right? Because you're talking about changing people's thinking, changing the very culture of the firm. It is it, it is easier said than done, and I think that um, using a I'll, I'll use this I'll use this business jargon, even though I hate it, but I, it's the first thing I can think of: low hanging fruit. I mean, the way we started rolling this out was looking for groups that we knew would be more receptive to tone of voice that we knew that we would have more influence in how they write. Getting some of those early wins helped us break into groups that were a little more difficult to break into, further away from marketing. But we still have a long ways to go. I just can't believe you used the phrase low-hanging fruit. I know. It was the first thing. I, I think that's why <laughs> jargon's so there, because like, what else are you going to say? I mean, it's like, do the easiest things first. I guess I could, I could have said that. That's a little more conversational. And sometimes it is. I think that's why it's such a hard thing to change because people fall into those habits. You're almost going to auto writing mode sometimes. It's like, oh, this is how we've always said it. And you don't even have to think about it. But changing your writing ultimately is about changing the way you think. Absolutely. So on the one hand, you have these deep seated beliefs that you have to write a certain way. On the other hand, you do have regulations and compliance and all of those things to deal with. And obviously those regulations are there for a reason. So in market reporting, for example, you can't be seen to have an opinion or show any emotion. So how do you get around that? <laughs> That's a good question. And I will say this is touching on one of my biggest pet peeves as we've started to roll this out. Sometimes you'll hear from others that, oh, we can't, this is a market report. This is a annual report or whatever. We can't change our tone of voice. Legal is going, won't let us do that. What I say to them is if all you do in that piece of content is add some structure, break up your sentences, throw a few bullet points in there, some subheads, and literally not change one word, you've moved the needle. And that's what I'm trying to tell people because as we have been walking or um, sharing this tone of voice around the global firm, I tell that to people, I, especially groups that I know will maybe not believe they can do it because they'll say, well, legal won't let us do that. So with content like that, if you can't add a distinctive personality to it, and, and sometimes you don't want to do that. I don't, I don't think our, our market, you know, our, our fund report should have a distinctive personality. I think they should communicate the content clearly and succinctly and structure can help do that. And we get Everyone can work on that, no matter where you are in the firm or who you're writing for. That's all fair enough, you know, more paragraph breaks, bullets, all that mm -hmm. good stuff you're talking about. But isn't that just really the basics of 
good writing, you're talking about even the clarity part of it. That's just kind of good writing 101, right? Absolutely. No matter what brand you're working for, no matter what your tone of voice is, those principles should apply. Distinctiveness, a personality, is where I think we really can set ourselves apart. And it's actually the most difficult thing to do in financial services in our category, I believe. I do think that our namesake, Ben Franklin, gives us a little bit of a steer here um, when we think about how he spoke, um, how he communicated, and that really drives a lot of the kind of personality we're trying to infuse into our copy. But it also takes, that takes, there's an art to that and a science. I think structure I don't know if, I don't know, you may or may not agree with this. I feel structure is more scientific and almost anyone can learn structure, um, how to break up sentences. You know, working in someone's personality or, or a distinctive personality takes a higher order skill and it's more difficult. So I think that while we've made a lot of progress on the structure side and, and clarity and conciseness, we still have a ways to go on the, on the distinctive side. And then some business partners are more open to it than others, and some channels are easier to bring in that personality than others. Mm-hmm. And that's and then you decide like where do you try to bring it in? Like is it is it appropriate in a white paper for an institutional investor? Maybe, maybe not. And I think that's where it, it gets a little more. There's a more of an internal debate about that. So what I'm hearing is that. Start with the basics and then kind of start adding personality as appropriate. So if all you do is good structure and clarity, that's already a big leap. Mm -hmm. But then find those opportunities for the distinctiveness to come in. Yeah. And I think that we've all met people that their personality is so big, they get tiring. Like, wow, you're interesting for the first five minutes, but I've been with you for 30 minutes and I'm a little tired now because you're just, you're too much. So by the same token... A brand can be that way. We don't have to infuse every word and page with some element of our personality. I think if there are sections where that personality comes out, that feels more natural to me. Just like a human kind of relationship. I'm not always going to try to make you laugh or or be cynical or whatever to try to show you my personality. I'm going to do that in ways that I think is appropriate at the right time. And I think if you think about the best copy does that as well. I actually love the fact that you talked about Ben Franklin earlier and that you called him Ben and not Benjamin, (laughs) uh, which right there makes him feel more approachable, more relatable, kind of gives a sense of it being more conversational. So it's almost like you're shifting the firm from thinking and writing like Benjamin Franklin to Ben Franklin. Right. And maybe maybe we'll get to Benny someday (laughs) or or Benji. I don't know. (laughs) Probably not. That might be too far away, but it's a really good point. I mean, be frank. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Benjamin is a very, it's a a traditional kind of conservative name in my, you know, and you think about Ben versus Benjamin, that that subtle shift could impact the way you write. So let's talk a bit more about how Ben, Benny, Benji did influence the voice, because remind me, it's summed up in a way that kind of harks back to your namesake as well. The name of our tone of voice is Speaking Frankly, and I absolutely love it. And I give you guys credit because you brought that name to us. And I love it for a few reasons. It has multiple meanings. Uh, obviously, it's about being frank in your written word and your verbal word that I'm going to say what I mean. I'm not going to make you guess what I mean. And I'm going to get right to the point. 
Ben Franklin did the same thing. And you think about the way he wrote and the way he communicated. It was clear. It was getting to the point. It was honest. And you didn't have to wade through a lot of words to understand what he was trying to get to. And then there's the other half of that, really, the speaking part, which was a very deliberate decision, because even though it's mostly about the written word, it is also about writing more like you speak. That's absolutely correct. And we are, have made some great progress recently where we're starting to bring our tone of voice into the teams that actually speak to our clients on the phone. So we're looking at ways that we can bring those principles of, of humanity and speaking frankly into those, into those scripts. So we've all been on those calls where it sounds like they're just reading, wrote, it's a robot, and we don't want to sound like that uh, with our clients. And so we're, we are excited that the tone of voice is leaping off the page and getting into some people's mouths. Now, when you first started at Franklin Templeton, what did you say, like five, six years uh, ago? Not quite, uh, a little over four years ago. Okay, so so how soon into this new job, your first foray into financial services, how soon did you realize we need a voice? Uh, <laughs> within 24 hours. And and the reason why is that we, I, I learned very quickly that we have a, a large internal creative agency, and they are great, they're very talented, and do a lot of work with them. But out of that entire agency, there wasn't one writer. So that quickly said to me, okay, wow, this brand has really placed a lot of emphasis on colors and photography and graphics, maybe at the expense of the writing side. My boss uh, noticed the same thing, and we bonded on this point right away. And we were lucky that our CMO shares a passion for good writing as well. So we quickly got together and said, this is something we want to work on. Now, you mentioned before what you wanted to shift with a new voice. What did you imagine the biggest hurdle would be in getting there? A couple of things. One, I think, and I just, I kind of alluded to this just a moment ago, that I think most people, or at least in this category, sometimes think about branding as just what how we look. A lot of resources go about how we look. And that I wanted to, I was concerned that people might not take the writing side as seriously. Meaning, no one wants to put out bad information. I'm not trying to say that. Everyone was concerned that we put out good content or you know accurate content, but that they wouldn't see the importance of delivering a distinctive tone of voice and writing in such a way that's more human and easily to, to digest and relatable. So I felt like that would be a barrier. Everyone asks me about legal. Was legal a barrier? And I have to say, this is one of my other pet peeve, is that frankly... <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that I've used the word frankly more in the last two and a half years than I have in the first, you know, 40 plus years of my life. So <laughs> I don't think we should worry so much about legal with some of this in tone of voice. I Obviously, I want legal to understand what we're doing. It would be great to have them on board. But honestly, it's not a legal call whether or not we start a sentence with and or use a contraction. So I think in my experience across my entire career, legal many times have weighed in with style comments and not legal comments. So when people ask me about, well, if legal's on, or is legal on board or not, I say to them, you know, make sure what you write is 
is true and accurate and we're not pushing any compliance boundaries. But if they tell you you have to, you can't start a sentence with and, you can ignore that. Has any lawyer ever come back to you and said, hey, I told you to change that sentence that starts with and when you have ignored them? Yes. <laughs> what did you do? You know, it wasn't here. It was at a previous life. And what I, I did was I actually had a, I pulled a lot of the, the lawyers that worked with the marketing team together and we had a kind of a big powwow because there was a bit of um, a power struggle where the, the lawyers and this particular firm felt very good about their writing style and that they needed to impart their wisdom upon us that have not gone to law school. And so we got in each other's shoes a little bit and understood, okay, where are we coming from? Where are they coming from? And and we we turned some of them around. Some of them will, will never be turned around. And ultimately, in that previous role, I had a discretion to, to ignore that. I mean, it sometimes didn't make them happy, but I did that anyway. So we talked a little bit about shifting individual people's points of view, but we are talking here about ultimately potentially shifting an entire industry. And, you know, if that kind of basic shift is just to be clearer and more natural, what happens when everyone starts sounding the same? Well, this might sound a little cynical, but I think we're going to have a lot of time. I think if we can actually deliver this, deliver on this tone of voice, and specifically in the institutional space, I think we will have a first mover advantage. And in my view, I don't see anyone doing this well yet. So I think we have an opportunity there. However, I do recognize that firms can change and they will catch up. And that's where I say the tone of voice that we have has to be more than just on the page. It has to be in our everyday actions on how we treat clients, how we treat colleagues, um, the way we speak to each other, the end-to-end experience has to deliver on that personality that you're delivering in, in your tone. The way I would sum that up is the words, the tonality cannot be limited to just the page alone. It has to come off that page and become part of who you are every day and the way you treat clients and colleagues. Any final tips for other financial organizations looking to develop or rethink their tone of voice? I think it's important to get cross-functional people groups involved early on. I mean, there will be a lot of things that you won't consider from a brand perspective as you think about rolling out a tone of voice and what's important to those audience types, what the potential pitfalls will be, and making sure you listen to them. I've also found that, and this goes for just creative conversations in general, is as much as you can, remove the words I like from the conversation and point to facts where you can to help drive adoption of that tonality. Because if we start thinking, saying things like, well, I like this copy better, I like that copy better, that's not going to go anywhere. You need to say, well, why is this copy, this tonality, more effective for that audience and have hopefully some tangible proof points. Thank you so much. Brilliantly frank advice. So, Kevin, here's where we hit you with our quick fire five, the famous five questions where we find out a bit more about your linguistic likes, dislikes, and dreams. Question number one. Are you ready? I've never heard of a linguistic dream before, but I like it. Well, you're about to tell us okay. one, so brace yourself. Okay. Uh, question number one. What's your favorite word? Okay. Uh, I hope I don't lose everyone out there, I'm gonna, uh, but my favorite word 
right now is loam. L-O-A-M, loam. And not the way it sounds, but what it evokes in me. Loam is a type of dirt. And I'm a mountain biker. And loam is very tacky and sticky. It's great to ride your bike on. And I love that word. So if you, it's all about what it represents, it's what where it, re- it takes you. Correct. It's what it represents. It's not necessarily how it sounds. And I like, I've been asked that question once before and I told someone loam. And the, the look that I get every time I say it is also kind of fun. Because no one knows what it means besides bikers. And I think gardeners might know what it means too. Well, for any bikers and gardeners listening in, I think you've just made some new friends. Question number two, what's your least favorite bit of business language? Well, I think I may have mentioned this early on, but it is learnings. Learnings. I hate that. I don't know how many times a consultant has come or an agency and said, we're going to share our learnings today. How about I'm just going to share with you what I learned. Do you think it's in the dictionary yet? Learnings, learning. You know, it probably is. I'd have to say, given where we are in today's world, it probably is in the dictionary now. But I still hate it. Maybe we should boycott the OED. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Question number three. Who would you like to write like? And I think I know who you're going to say here. I don't think so. I think I'm going to surprise you. I think you know that I like Stephen King, and I've mentioned him before. Now, while I think he is a great storyteller, and I've read... Uh, most of his books. If I had to think about someone I admire and would would want to write most like, it would be John Steinbeck, my favorite, at least my favorite American author. And my favorite book of his is East of Eden. And what I love about East of Eden is that it's so straightforward and it he can say so much in very short and simple phrases. If you didn't work for Franklin Templeton, which brand would you love to work with specifically to help them with their language? <laughs> This is going to sound weird, but it's it's the IRS. I think the IRS could use a lot of help with their tone of voice. I mean, you might think I would have said something like, I want to work for Nike or I want to work for Apple, but what am I going to do for Nike and Apple? They're already nailing it. So I want to work with a, with a brand, and I guess IRS is a brand <laughs> that has a lot of room to grow. And a lot of that would be kind of almost like information design, right? Just... Better yeah, forms. as as tax season comes up, that's exactly right. And, well, and we didn't even cover this. I think you know, great writing. It's it's it's. I, I like to use the phrase as copy as design. So if making it look easy to read is half the battle. And I think if the IRS just did some structure changes, it would go a long way. But wouldn't it be fun to read an IRS document with a little personality? It would just make the whole thing a lot more fun. And I think that if I was there for six months, you would see a difference. I think we should make tax fun again. I like it. That should be a hat. (laughs) Number five. Final question. When or where do you have your best ideas? On a trail, uh, in the woods or in the mountains. That's where I I have my best ideas. And finally, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the importance of words. But if you really want to stand for something, shouting about it isn't enough. Your actions need to live up to your promises. Kevin, you have a great example of this. I do. And it's my favorite brand, uh, REI. And um, what they did several years ago, this isn't news to many people, especially if you're REI fans or in the, in the branding and marketing industry, but they, they did stand for something and they took action. They were the first major retailer to close on Black Friday. And they created this, this campaign, hashtag opt outside. And what I love, love about this campaign is it speaks directly to their target audience. I mean, the last thing that I want to do on any day 
much less Black Friday, as someone who loves the outdoors, is go to the mall or go to any place and shop. And so they recognized that, and they took the very bold move of closing their stores and their website. You couldn't buy anything from REI on that day and encouraged their audience to enjoy the outdoors, no matter what that is. And I thought it was just a great example of a brand putting their money where their mouth is. Now, for any of our listeners who maybe don't know REI, so they're an outdoorsy store? Yeah, it's a, it's a co-op. It's an outdoor store that sells backpacking equipment, kayaking, running, mountain biking. You name the outdoor sport and they support it. And that experience really goes through, in my opinion, even into the store. All the people in the store live and breathe that brand. So this idea of closing on Black Friday, encouraging people to go outside, ultimate expression of what the brand stands for. Absolutely. I think that Dove is another really great example. I mean, their campaign for real beauty, I think, is about 11 or 12 years old now. But they've kind of carried on and on and on with that, which could have been, you know, a one-off creative idea. Um, Have you heard of the Dove Self-Esteem Project? I think I have. Is that where people describe what they look like and someone else talks about what they look like and well, there was that video, remember, when right. said that, yeah, you think of that video where, like, they had people drawing each other, and the one that the person drawing you almost always saw you as more beautiful than you see yourself. Correct. But the, the self-esteem project is kind of like an educational initiative that they have where they're helping young girls to be more confident about their bodies. They're going around schools and youth groups and educating people. They're making resources available to parents. So they're really out there in the community taking this idea of real beauty to kids and giving them better self-esteem growing up. Dove, REI, great examples. Unfortunately, you know, in researching this, it wasn't very easy to find many of those because so many brands stop at the promise and never really follow through with their actions. But these days, it's actually getting harder and harder to get away with that, isn't it? Good point, Anilia. But I think what's happening today is that younger generations, you know, I'll use the word millennials, even though I, I hate to use the word, it's just overused. They're really looking for brands that have a grander purpose and they're and they're more readily to call out brands that say they have a purpose and don't deliver on it. But a good example of someone who is doing it is Warby Parker, the sunglass manufacturer and retailer, where they have this buy a pair, get a pair. So for every pair of glasses they sell, they donate a pair of glasses to someone in need. And they've actually built that into the very brand from the start, right? So it's not like they kind of came up with this promise halfway through and then they went, oh, now let's do this thing. It's just something they've always done. And I think we're going to see more and more brands doing that as you see startups coming in and disrupting things. Which kind of brings us to an interesting question, which is, do you think brands have to stand for some kind of greater good these days? You know, this may be somewhat controversial, but I don't think they do. I think a brand should only stand for a higher purpose if it's truly authentic to who they are as a brand. It speaks to their value proposition and resonates with their audience. I think it's ridiculous when you have brands that sell shoes or coffee or whatever, and their purpose is so grand that it has, like, I'm going to solve peace in the Middle East, that has no connectivity with their business. To me, it feels gratuitous. And it feels like we're just doing it because some agency said millennials care about purpose and they want to work with a brand with purpose. 
and I would say at the end of the day, the business is about profitability and purpose is important if it connects to that. How about the kind of basic makeup of a brand, the idea of having at least some values? Aren't those some kind of promise as well on a smaller scale, not necessarily some kind of big corporate social responsibility thing? No, and don't don't misunderstand me. I think that um, all brands should have values in the way we uh, work with each other, the way we treat our clients, our customers, and we and we should live those. I mean, that's if you don't have that, then you're going to have a very cold brand indeed. What I was referring to is where I feel brands go wrong is where they pick a grand world cause that they are somehow going to impact that has little to no connectivity to who they are. I think that's where brands go wrong. So what lessons can we take away from that? I think one is that words are great, but alone they're not enough because you know you have to really live what you're saying about your brand. Absolutely. And I, I think we talked about this a few minutes ago, that personality, the values that you have as a brand, they can't just live on a page, on a web page, on a brochure, or in an ad. They have to influence the decisions that you make. And I think REI is a great example of that. If they espouse to promote the outdoors and to get their customers to be outdoors and to enjoy and, and to really be passionate about that, that's what they talk about. And then they took the action to close on Black Friday. I think that's what's important. It can't just be words. It has to be actions. My next tip would be, and I think Dav and Ari, I did this really well, to focus on just one thing and really build on that. Really figure out that one thing you want to stand for and go from there. I, I agree. And there's a. I think it takes it takes the right leadership in the, an organization to do that. It takes boldness. I mean, I would have loved to have been in the room when the CEO at REI was pitched the idea to close on Black Friday. I would have loved to hear the first comment. That was a bold move. And I think focusing on one thing, making a real difference takes courage. And uh, that's what we need more of. For my final tip, I am going to bring it back to words. Surprise, surprise. And that's to say, when you do talk about it, be sincere. Uh, One of my pet peeves is when I read about brands doing good, but... It sounds so full of corporate speak that it might as well be a page from a badly written annual report. Or on the other end of the spectrum, where uh, it sounds like marketing spin and like they're just doing this to sell you more stuff. I think what we can conclude here is that you need to make sure your actions live up to your words, but also that your words do justice to your actions. That is a great wrap. I couldn't have said it better than myself. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening and do join us again next time. If you have any thoughts or questions, you can email us at podcast at And if you like what you've heard, do leave us a rave review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. If you don't know The Writer, have a look at thewriter.com or our LinkedIn page or follow us on Twitter at The Writer. I'm Anelia Varela and that was The Writer's Podcast from San Mateo, California. Till next time, goodbye. Let me tell you a little bit more about loam. I know you're really interested in, in, in loam, but it's actually uh, fairly scientific. It's 40% sand, 40% silt, and 20% clay. And why it's so cool is it actually holds water 
yet sheds water at the same time, which sounds impossible, but it does it. And what makes that so great is that it makes it really sticky, it's not dusty, but it's not muddy. And that's the 40-40-20 is the, is the magic mix for long. So when you talk about biking, it's, it definitely comes out very quickly. And I can get very passionate about the littlest things. Loam is one of them. <laughs> Loam.